This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 194 of Horsemanship Radio brought to you by Hands on Gloves, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing and grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today's episode is all about no feet, no horse, and more. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my trusty producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. I'm back. (laughs) Yes, you are. And I'm so glad. I can't wait to share this one with you, because I know you have an OTTB, Nigel, who um, has had crumbly feet in the past. Am I right? He is a farrier's nightmare. Oh, Yes. I've heard of that product. Farrier's Nightmare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. That, They've that tried be, it all. That would be a, a fun thing with, with Photoshop to make a label yeah. for a little tin can with a brush in the top. Farrier's Nightmare. <laughs> Not Farrier's Friend. It's Farrier's Nightmare. I know. I know. If it wasn't for having a project with our horses, what would we think about all day? Right. <laughs> Anything right. else? But I've got two guys on today. In fact, one guy was so enlightening. It was just such a great honor to have Jamie Jackson booked for this episode that we couldn't stuff it all in one interview. We have a part two coming up with Jamie and people have got to stay tuned for episode 195 to hear that. But in 194, I'm really excited. This whole recipe for today's episode started years ago with a friendship, really, it's soul of a horse, but it was Joe Camp who came, and he was only known to me as the guy who directed and created Benji, the dog. Didn't know he had anything to do with horses at all. Do you remember Benji? Benji, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. He did love that dog. He was so smart. He could read and write, I'm sure. Sure. And I thought, who's the brilliant guy behind the guy who made a brilliant dog? It's Joe Camp. And Joe Camp showed up, good old boy, Southern drawl, disarming completely of how intelligent this guy was. And he said, tell me all about horses and took a course here and later wrote a book called The Soul of a Horse and then pulled all the shoes off his horse. And then he took this cute little dusty piece of property down in Vista, California, above San Diego. And he made it into a track system with nothing but rocks. And he had a couple of stalls on the property and they thought, well, we'll have a couple of horses. And then they went, we don't want the stalls for the horses. We want a track system for the horses. And it heard about this thing called Paddock Paradise. And we have today on the show for you. We have the originator of that concept. So this was a long way of making this episode, but it took friendships and and a lot of thought leaders put into this show. Have you ever seen a paddock paradise, Jen? I you know what I'm talking. Never seen a paddock paradise or a track paddock in person. We have to change that. I we think they're probably that. more common in the northern and western parts of the United States. Um, I don't know. We'll I think maybe because in the drier climates, the beautiful mm-hmm. green grass is rarer, you mm-hmm. generally don't have it at all unless you cultivate it. You water it. You take good care of it. You're careful right. not to let it get overgrazed. So having a track which 
to the modern horsekeeper's eye might look icky. <laughs> and that surrounds a beautiful small patch of grass mm-hmm. might be something that to your average Joe was like, oh, that's a good idea. Versus Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Florida, mm. even Georgia. A lot of the places that I've spent most of my life, right. a big patch of beautiful, smooth, mown green grass <laughs> is what's mm. perfect because that's what we as horsemen for many generations thought was the healthiest. Ah, you mean it's always been that way? It's that We've famous. Heard that it's always <laughs> been that way. And that's what we perceived mm. to be a well cared for horse property and a well cared right. for horse. So mm-hmm. I think it's being accepted at a much slower rate where we are mm-hmm. because of the peer pressure to have a place that looks a certain way. When you see a picture, you look at a picture, beautiful rolling green hills, acres and acres of one giant piece of grass with nothing in it, but 10 <laughs> horses. <gasps> yeah, Perfection, right? That's what we automatically mm. think. And yet when mm. we see something that's got dust and dirt and rocks and maybe electric fence <laughs> posts and mm-hmm. a hay net thrown here and there. It's like, oh my, what's that? We're judgy mm-hmm. because as you, as horse people, we like to judge each other, right? Yeah. But here was a left turn though. What do we think is beautiful Mustangs living on? Right. Exactly. Oh. And again, it's always been that way. Oh, poor wild horses. Oh, yeah. That's right? <laughs> right? They Oh, they live in the desert where there's nothing to eat. They mm. need that beautiful green grass. It's a change in perception and it's a change of what really is good or what can be good. And this is going to be a, f- a fun conversation to listen to because you get to hear about the spark that got this whole thing started mm-hmm. had to do with the fact that for domesticated horses and for wild horses too, for that matter, that giant plot of 40 acres of green groomed grass, probably not as perfect as we thought it was. So I can't wait to listen in on these conversations to hear about the why it got started and how it evolved and a lot of the science behind why it's not necessarily the perfect situation. Hello, laminitis. Yeah. So The thought process as you go into these interviews is, what if we could create an environment where horses are always moving in their natural way, horses stretched out and reached down as their digestive system is set up to do, and all day long they're stretching out, reaching down, and getting that top line better? What if we could create an environment that kept them moving so that their feet occasionally went through water and occasionally walked over edges and stuff instead of sitting in a stall? And I know this is the ideal. What if we could create an environment that led horses to bond with each other, to create hierarchy in a herd, that they were more social? What if that environment took in all those elements And even for the performance horse that wants to stay loose and athletic, it actually was okay for them too. What if you could put your three-day eventers into an environment like that? Would you educate yourself to it? Maybe. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So so listen carefully to these conversations and uh, do a little research on your own after you hear them and see if it's something that you can begin transitioning your horse management system into something that works for you and your horses to help those horses allow 
what should be their natural habitat, allow that to contribute to your horse's career rather than withholding it. So kind of cool. And we're going to do that right after we hear from our title sponsor, Hands on Gloves. And by the way, I found yet another new use for a hands-on glove. You did. Tell me what. Every time. Saddle pads. Horses yeah. shed Absolutely. all over their saddle pads. Crusty hair. When you, you turn it upside down and let it dry, right? But then how, what do you do? You take the hands-on glove and you clean it off. idea. Great idea. Because instead of slapping it on top of your saddle and getting that kind of moist and yucky, I usually turn it over anyway. So you kind of have to turn it inside out, right? Yeah. So why don't I get into the little habit of that? Those hands-on gloves are pick up everything. They yeah. pick up everything well, and then I it have, shakes right off. I have, my saddle pad is natural sheepskin, mm-hmm. which needs to be groomed in order to yeah. keep its nap safe. That's right. So I let it dry and I use that hands-on glove to keep the nap healthy and fluffy and clean. Works way better than a bristle brush. Way better. Way better. Perfect in Florida, too. Look at you. That's awesome. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts. And am I excited to bring you the news of a revolutionary, new, all-in-one, shedding, bathing, grooming tool. Hands-on gloves. They are fantastic. And you believe me, I've tried them all. Hands-on outperforms traditional curry combs, shedding blades, metal bristles, and all those things. Most animals will gravitate to you for more grooming and petting time. If you wear them, your animals will love you more for it. While using the hands-on gloves, you can easily handle water hoses, shampoo bottles, lead ropes, leashes, and anything you want with them on your hands. They are easy to clean, and they massage muscles and stimulate circulation while helping to distribute natural oils for a healthy skin and coat. Hands-on is changing the way we bathe, de-shed, and groom our animals forever. Hands-on gloves. They are fantastic. Jamie Jackson has been a professional hoof care practitioner since the 1970s, and in the 1980s, he conducted studies of the lifestyles and hooves of the U.S. Great Basin wild free-roaming horses. This changed his career path forever to become a pioneer as a non-traditional natural hoof care practitioner. This transition culminated in his first book, The Natural Horse, Lessons from the Wild, in 1992, and then he updated it in 2020. So look for that. Other written works by Jamie are currently used by the Institute for the Study Natural Horse Care Practices, ISNHCP, to train students in the artful science of natural hoof care. In 2005, he wrote the book Paddock Paradise, a guide to natural horse boarding to help horse owners create habitats for their horses that stimulate or simulate the wildness and wilderness experience of the species. Well, welcome back, Jamie Jackson. I'm so glad to have you back on Horsemanship Radio. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you for having me again. I'm glad to have you back, and uh, I've learned so much. I didn't realize how much I didn't know, I think, the first time we we did the interview. As much as I loved your concept, and I'd even been to your Lompoc area at that point, you were in a California little village near us where you had a paddock paradise set up. And I was enthralled by how you got there, really, more than the mechanics of it and your story. 
And that was explored. And I'll put a link in the show notes so people can listen to that first interview and catch up with you. But I wanted to sort of expand on that today and tell you how I think the ingenuity that you showed in creating your Paddock Paradise book was uh, genius. And I know that your story is one that you'd say you didn't cook this up in your basement. You actually did this as something very purposeful, correct? And so, yeah, a quick couple of sentences maybe about how you came across the concepts that you explored at the U.S. Great Basin. Okay. Well, the concept for Paddock Paradise, which is a tracking system, mm-hmm. we came right out of wild horse country. I think many people go to see the wild horses, or at least they do these days. Back then, there were very few of us. And the people don't notice that there's pathways all over the place. And the horses around these and other animals, and they're going here and they're going there. And so as I began to get to know the animals and follow them around, then I would see that those pathways linked various places they would go to, certain activities would occur, watering hole, feeding grounds, minerals they're going to eat, things like that. So from that observation came how to transpose that into a domestic situation. And so I had to tool around with the idea a bit for a number of years. We're going way back to 1982, 83, around in those years. It reminds me a little bit of my dad's story, Monty Roberts. When he was 12, 13, he went out to the Nevada desert to round up wild horses for the wild horse race that they had at the then called the California Rodeo in Salinas, California. And he observed was the language equus, not the trails or the traveling so much, which you were doing, but a parallel idea. And he came home and had to have a think about how he would use his body to emulate and to communicate, frankly, with the horses. And it was eyes on eyes and palms open and shoulders squared, shoulders rounded, communicating different things as the matriarch does in the herd and and the other horses. So you're a little bit younger than dad. He's 86 now. But (laughs) you you did very much the same thing that he enjoyed doing, which was purposeful to go and observe. So I think it'd be fun to hear he created a, a language using his body. How did you create, a, in a domestic setting, something that would be as crazy an idea as trying to emulate what the basin looked like in your backyard? Well, good question. A complicated one. <laughs> yes. First of all, I was a farrier uh, at the time that I went out there. And so I was concerned about hoof problems with domestic horses. So when I went out there, I wanted to see what the hooves were like in the wilderness state. And so I saw that and I thought, well, this is very good. This is really something. So how did they get that way? Mm -hmm. And so that meant that I had to not only study the hooves and the corrals close, but to go out and see how they work those hooves on the ground. And so there was some really important information, diversity of of ground types. And so when the idea for Paddock Paradise came, finally, I thought, well, we're going to have to do that. We, We need to have elevated ground. We need to have water they can stand in, sanding areas that they can roll in, rough ground to walk across. So 
Then you have to look and see what you have in a particular environment. And the first paddock paradise was the result of the laminitis case in, down in Georgia. And so the, horse, uh, the horses are in great trouble. So I said, I tell you what, I have this idea. I didn't call it paddock paradise because it didn't exist yet. Right. I hadn't written the book. <laughs> right. And, and so, <laughs> so I said, you're going to have to get rid of all that grass. Because by then I knew that grass was a trigger for laminitis. Mm. And so they brought out their tractor and they did this and got rid of it. And then they tracked the the property like you saw on folk. And then I said, okay, now we have to texture the ground. We have to add stuff in there. And that's how it began. And ever since, people, I count on people's ingenuity to solve mm. these problems. Yeah, very cool. And there are geniuses out there in different environments because somebody might say listening to that, well, but I live in England now and um, there's a lot of grass that grows because it rains a lot and I can't I can't pretend to keep the grass down. So you must have these different environment challenges that you don't have in Nevada, <laughs> maybe, or maybe even Arkansas. But if you go to a wetter climb, how do you keep the, let's go with laminitis right now, because that might be something that somebody would be concerned about. How do you keep the weeds down in a particular way? If a horse has developed what I call whole horse inflammatory disease, and mm-hmm. laminitis is a symptom of that, either kill the grass or you kill the horse. Oh, gosh, yeah. You have to make, make a decision there, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's different ways to do that. Okay. Now, in, in the UK, it's an island, and it's surrounded by ocean. It's a very wet climate a lot of the time. So one day, uh, a group of UK horse owners who had put a track together, and it was a, just a big muddy mess right there, especially where they had parked their vehicles and to, to get it into the tracking area. And so they said, we just can't seem to, we got mud everywhere. <laughs> and, I, and, and so they showed me a photograph. I looked at it. I said, ah, the solution is right there. Mm. Right in the photograph. And I said, do you see it? And so I sort of taunted them with that for a while. And finally, <laughs> so we don't see it at all. You know? no. I said, well, look how you came from a paved road out wow. to, the, to your track. It was a good, goodly distance. I said, look how you got out there. Two little paths of cement, roadbed mm-hmm. is what it was. Mm-hmm. And you guys are driving out there. You're not, you would be sinking in the mud like the horses. <laughs> So that's what you've got to do. And I've advocated roadbed, C4, they call it out here, the stuffed gravel road, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to put it in. And so I gave them some instructions. In fact, I went and talked with our, right there in Lompoc, I went and talked with the, what do you call it, the road manager for the road construction. Oh, yeah, the, mm-hmm, for the and highways. He, and he, mm-hmm. and he, put, he took me around and uh, he showed me how they did it in sand, how they did would have been mud through grass. And I said, okay, there we go. So you have those people for the roadworks. They're really experts, and, and I recommend people to go talk with them. Okay. And they're, they're, all, they're often curious. They'll come out and see what you've got. So, oh, yeah, we can solve that in a day. That's a great a idea. Yeah, that's a great tip. So, it makes perfect sense. And, 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 then, engine, mm-hmm. and at the edge of the fencing where this grass, just you can either, they've got implements that, in some of the bigger systems, put on the back of a tractor. It's like a rototiller. 
You just drag it along the edge, and that really minimizes the amount of grass, or you can till it up something that biodegrades. It just depends on your specific circumstances. And But if you've got laminitis, you've got to kill the grass. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, very critical. Okay. So now if you don't have laminitis and you're, you've got a back pasture and everything's pretty equal and you say, well, horses grew up on the steps and grass, so maybe we can take healthy horses and maintain them on grass. Do you do a rotation system? It seems like you would, well, depending on how many horses and how much land, you might have it eaten down pretty quickly or no. Well, the idea is to keep the horses in the track, tracking system, mm-hmm. instead of roaming around other places because we want to direct their movement. So because we now know that the grasses contain sugar, fructans, that horses have great difficulty metabolizing. The idea is to feed them a dry forage. And, and you recall at our track there, we used hay poles with hay bags. Mm-hmm. And we just get hays that we knew were safe and cram the bags full of it, hang it from the poles, and the horses just go from one, what we call one feed station to the next. End of laminitis. Right. Right there. Exactly. Okay. So, genius. And we encourage people to, 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 to make hay with the, the internal <laughs> pastures. People do that. <laughs> yeah, there okay. you go. So you could accordion them off, though, and leave some horses out there for a few hours, or you just reject that altogether? Well, because the uh, they're insulin-resistant species, mm-hmm. uh, count them out to diabetics among humans, we really have to keep them off, off those types of grasses. If you're in the Great Basin, that's another question. But even there, horses can become laminitic if they... If the horses enter a riparian system and there's no predators, uh, keep them out of there. So it's just best to go to, to dry forage and your hay tested. And uh, okay. Oh, that's a good tip too. Yeah, that's true. So some people, uh, I, I'm a total believer in no foot, no horse. How could you not? <laughs> but but some people would say, well, unlimited free choice of roughage or hay nets to slow down the eating or put them out in some sort of cycle, what would you recommend you find this the best? Well, the the hay bags, of course, are free choice. They can eat whenever they want. I just got an email from a fellow there in Santa Inez. He's picked up a hundred and something acres. He wants to turn it into a big paddock paradise and bring horses in to board. Oh, wow. Wow, that's great. Okay, sort of in a good habitat for doing it. It's very dry, almost high desert type biome out there. Okay. And and so he'll feed hay, a mix of different types of hay, so you get that diversity and maybe some sort of uh, supplementation depending on the age of the animal and the quality of the hays. But again, uh, laminitis is really what I call epidemic. Yeah. You saw what I saw and what I hear. You would, and it's pretty devastating to animals. I've got three or four cases going right now on consultation and it's the same sort of thing horses getting into feeds and pastures where they they just can't take it basically mm-hmm. they metabolically break down mm-hmm. so if you're uh, back to the free choice and that's what horses are built for unlimited free choice i'm told yeah. that they will regulate even though people will think oh my gosh my horse will just stand at a bag then and finish it off and go to the next <laughs> one <laughs> but what kind of hay i mean you can't feed alfalfa free choice or we have some feed guidelines that we've okay. created they're accessible on our on our website aanhcp and we recommend people to go there because we sort of worked that out in lompoc mm-hmm. 
where we're dealing with horse was much older and then younger, and so it's pretty pretty complicated. Figured out something that's safe for horses, and um, since we don't have that research done on, in the Great Basin wild horses, mm-hmm. we came up with something that seemed to be safe and nutritious and. So rather than try to expound on that, yeah, now from memory, oh, that's yeah, with people to that, okay, yeah, direct them to the, yeah, we'll have links to the website and and how to reach you too before the end of this, but okay. yeah. So some people ask us, what's the type of slow feeders that people are using these days? And I'd rather ask you, what is your ideal? Is it the bags on the posts or which is like just a hay net? If people know what that is, it's a hay net with yeah. slower eating because of the smaller holes or bigger holes, whatever you guys. Right. They have a prehensile lips like hands and they can grab out bunches of it at a time to eat. Not a whole lot. So it does slow them down. They're not grazers. They're nibblers, foragers. And so the hay bags and are really kind of a good way to go. Okay. You can control the amount they're getting, where they're going to get it, and the type of forage they're going to get. You mix the haze together, in there, which we did yeah. in our paddock paradigm. Yeah, which is great. And people can look that up, too. You know, you saw how healthy they were. They were quite robust and great mm-hmm. vitality, but great hooves. <laughs> and great hooves, too. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit, too, the, the whole reason for That's being cool. here, huh? But some people have asked about feeder machines and these things with the chips. and. Well, I'll say this, that Panic Paradise is probably thousands of them right now around the planet. All the time I get emails from people, we so appreciate this. It's working great. You'll never hear from us again. <laughs> so they're out there, out there doing it, and and they're doing all sorts of different things. And people are experimenting. And it gave me an idea. And I thought about since I'm going to be in Europe, why don't I sort of put the word out and travel around and see what people are doing, interview them, mm-hmm. take photographs, and maybe create a sort of a book about what people are doing and maybe uh, how to contact them if they're open to that. Yeah. And um, we also have a Facebook page where people who are doing this can come in and they can argue with each other and share their information <laughs> and this and that. I stay out of there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't blame you, but I... I... The book. That's enough. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. I like it. That books don't talk back. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I know I love your. I've I've looked at some of those different pages that people have put up. There's Paddock Paradise U.S. and Europe and lots of individuals too. You're exactly right. I love that you let the genie out of the bag and that you're free spirit, free source. People are left to their own ingenuity and that. Yeah, and they can share with each other. What I did was I presented a concept and rooted in the ancient behavior of the species. And now run with it. See what you can do. Share with others. Invite other horses to live in yours. And uh, and away we go. <laughs> yeah. And and this is where we should go with the, you know, the next interview with you, Jamie, is that how strong can a hoof be if we put it in a really great situation like a track system where they where you you can tease that hoof into becoming the best healthiest wall possible for the horse and um i would i'd love for you to expand on that a little bit for a few minutes if you could yeah sure sure yeah uh 
I'll take any question on the hooves. That's my expertise. It is. <laughs> the, uh, did you want me to just yeah. make a comment here? Please. Yeah, the, uh, we, we're going back to Panic Paradise because this is where, where it occurs. Uh, the, the more rugged the tracking system, the better the hooves, the better the bodies of the horse. The, uh, the idea is to facilitate athletic behavior. And if they, if they are tracked, they will instinctively, they will run. They will do all kinds of movements that they would do in the wild, showing off. Ours did that all the time. And, um, and in the end, what, uh, what I discovered was that, uh, the paddock paradise is a, it's a very profound way to cause hooves to grow, to grow more naturally. They grow more naturally. They don't just wear down. They transform. Their shape transform, what I call migration of mass, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you recall the soles, the frogs. I yeah. never trimmed those in our paddock paradise. They're beautiful. The walls were thick, strong. I mean, they're uh, like rocks, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so the trimming of hooves in paddock paradise to simulate the wild horse model is going to be different than how a hoof is trimmed, for example, to be shod. Okay. The, the whole, uh, this should be taught in vet schools and uh, hoof care schools around the world. And, yeah. uh, because it definitely is a, a very unique discipline uh, onto itself. And um, so if you want the greatest hooves ever on a horse and put them in a, put them in a paddock paradise and uh, make sure the people doing the hoof work are trained to do the natural trim. Mm-hmm. And you have a school for that or an association that uh, still, we, I think, we, yep. We have a school, the uh, isnhcp.net and it's international. We have people, uh, uh, you know, here and there around the planet who are teaching students go to them to learn. It's, we have training steps. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty yeah. demanding, and uh, uh, it's you know you can't you can't learn to trim a horse in a in a three day clinic. You really need mm-hmm. to have a lot of exposure to the uh, morphology that we're that we're dealing with the hoofs morphology, how the transformation we're looking for, what to trim, not what not to trim, how to stimulate natural growth patterns, things like that, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we. We get people started with it, and then we shadow them very closely through the process. Yeah, brilliant. This has been such a fascinating conversation thus far, and there's so much more because the book that Jamie Jackson has written has gotten an update, and we're curious to see what those updates are and what's been going on since the original publication, because it's kind of the school book on the topic. So everybody stay tuned to Horsemanship Radio episode 195, which will come out in the middle of November, and we're going to have the second part of this conversation with Jamie Jackson. Imagine if you could take Monty to the barn with you. Watch and learn as he addresses each challenge with your horse and answers your questions, too. You head to the arena and you work on each new lesson, knowing Monty's there to encourage you, all with violence-free, tried-and-true methods. 
After all, he's been helping train horse lovers all his life. With his online university, you could be like Kathy, a retired teacher who just bought her first horse. Recently, I went to a tax shop to look for a smaller halter. I'm 61, just purchased my 14 hands POA the day after my birthday, just a few weeks ago, after never having had a horse. And yes, that's crazy, but as a retired teacher who never had a hobby other than teaching, I decided to go for it. My hubby and I have taken lessons this past year, but I really longed for a relationship with a horse. Um, The only other experience I'd ever had was to ride a horse in Philly, Pennsylvania, my hometown, when I was 16, and I got bucked off, and that was it, (laughs) until I was 61. Um, Well, the owner of this tax shop, um, this is Precious Lady, 84-year-old lady, gave me a copy of this magazine, Equine Monthly, and the article I read in it was Horses Are Biofeedback Beings, and it was just so interesting. I really felt like I just found a pot of gold when I read it, because in it, it talked about Monty's online university and that I could have access to 575 videos for $10 a month. And before that, I was just searching YouTube for everything I could find. But truthfully, that's just a pain. Um, I love that the uni videos are concise and they're in order. Um, They have extra notes and a quiz. And I just can't thank you enough for the huge blessing of your online university. It really has changed my life and I will never be the same Um, I've had my horse Jack now for seven weeks, and thanks to the videos, I've done join up with him, and it really worked like a dream. Uh, I had to do it in an arena, but it still worked, thanks to Monty's lessons and the cues and the hand signals. Um, The ability to watch the lessons over and over on demand is incredible. So I also want to thank you so very much for making the online university affordable for this retired teacher. Thank you so much for all that you do for everyone who really wants to love a horse. Kathy. David Landerville turned to barefoot trimming after coming very close to having to euthanize his horse Santo, whom he had had been shoeing for a little over a year at the time. He was always fascinated by shoeing. It requires much of the craftsmanship skills that are developed in other trades, but the application can be a matter of life and death for the horse. David desperately searched for ways to change the predicted outcome for Santo. He quickly learned that there was a difference between just leaving the shoes off of a horse and promoting good bare feet. This has been his focus now for over 15 years, rebuilding hooves. Well, welcome, David Landreville. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Horsemanship Radio. Thanks, Debbie. Yeah, we love the whole idea of teasing horse hooves into little rocks, if we can get them there, to protect our horses, (laughs) yeah? And I know you excel at that. I saw um, that you had done a clinic at one of my favorite places, Zapata, up in Colorado at the Ranchlands. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and love the article that they put out and had a lot of your quotes in. And I wanted to introduce you to listeners because I think you communicate very well, but you also uh, have gone along a route that I think is going to be the future of keeping horses barefoot, first of all, and also healthy and transformative. So 
the first question I, I definitely wanted to get into is how did you get into this? Did you grow up with horses? What's your background? Well, I kind of, I guess the best way to say it is horses kind of came in and out of my life when I was a kid. I didn't really grow up with them. My folks had them for a, a little time and then they got divorced. And then I ended up working on at uh, Hunter Jumper Barns when I was like 14 years old just to have extra money. And then I got kind of stuck with horses from that point on. <laughs> Most of us would love to have that life, actually. And we're trying yeah, to figure out ways yeah. to do it, right? <laughs> How to make yeah. a living and get stuck with horses. But So some people yeah. have suggested that domesticated horses are inferior and they, and they just would never survive in the wild. What's your take on that? I honestly think that if you do right by domestic horses and the earlier you start, the better that they can have uh, better feet than Mustangs. Than Mustangs. But it, has, it comes down to the, yeah, than any wild horses. And it just comes down to how good you are at setting them up for success. So I think that we can control the environment. We control what we feed them. We can control how often we trim and how well we trim and, you can simulate miles of wear with your raft to build, to continue to build a foot. Mm -hmm. And in that case, Mustangs have a harder life. They don't, and they've got to kind of deal with different seasons and drought and uh, too much water and mm -hmm. different things. So what I love about that is it puts a responsibility back on us, first of all. That's, that's a good yeah, thing, right. right? And to say that, right. wait a minute, we actually can create a nicer environment for our horses than what these wild horses. A lot of people think it's very romantic to see a band of wild horses, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. But if you think that they're living the ideal life, I think that would be a stretch because yeah. of their survivors out there. And that's what makes them strong. But I don't, I agree with you. I don't know why we can't do that same thing or try to emulate that for our, our horses to our domestic horses. What I hear you saying when I read a little bit about you is that you can actually not just improve their hoof on their feet, but you can rebuild a horse from the bottom up. Yes. Yeah. The first time I heard that was, or that I thought about that was at a Charles the Comfy clinic. And he was talking about making horses better than they were made and by riding them correctly. And then at first I thought that kind of sounded dumb. Oh, I don't know what the word is for that, but maybe <laughs> not impossible, but a little bit self-righteous or uh, uh, like make them better than a horse, make them better than God made them. I, I thought you. that was kind of a, and then after a while, I got to thinking about what he said. And I was like, well, you know what? I, I think that the same thing about their feet, if you can, if you have the ability to build their feet and there's not a limitation to hoof development mm -hmm. and then you can, then we, and we are supposed to be stewards of the earth. If I can make a foot better for a horse, then why can't you make their body better? And then I realized how close the two things went together. I found that people who ride correctly will have straighter feet on their horses, and then, and then they're easier to balance, easier for me to balance. So it, it all goes hand in hand, yeah. And I think that you can't do, you can do good on either end, but bringing the two together makes it makes it much better. Yeah, nicely said. I read a quote from you that said, I feel that when we decide to put horses in our backyards, we should we also should assume the duties of Mother Nature by encouraging movement and simulating miles of wear through trimming. We can make continual hoof development possible. 
tell me about what our backyard looks like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what my backyard looks like. Okay. <laughs> it, took, it took me a long time to get it there because we don't have very much property. And, uh, but I just, we had about a half an acre to work with for the horses. Okay. And I started out with, we had at the beginning, we had five horses and, and I had three stalls that were 12 by 12 and then a, like maybe 12 by 36 turnout for the other two. And then we just rotated them so that everybody would get turns to a little turnout. And after I read Joe Camp's book, Soul of a Horse, I was really anxious to get down and take the gates off the off of the pens and then just take the barriers down and start getting them, getting them moving. And then we ended up taking, just building lanes from that point and I just, it took me about seven years to get it all fenced in, but I fenced in a big track system for the, based on the paddock paradise mm-hmm. stuff. I built a big loop and then I just built loops off of loops. And I just kept, I still, I'm still putting in different areas for the, for the horses to keep them interested in moving and going up hills and down hills and around corners and making sure that they can live as a herd and not the dominant horses can't corner the more submissive horses and and get hurt so yeah that's so i've got we've got a place with a round pen connected to the old paddock area that has no more barriers or fences in it just has a covered area and then some lanes and hills that they can come up to the house if they want and winnie at at us and remind us (laughs) it's lunchtime or yeah (laughs) (laughs) and there's different water sources for them and they and i go out three times a day or my wife or my daughter we take turns going out three times a day to spread hay every about every 10, 20 feet, they get a little pile of hay and then they sort it out themselves for the, for the rest of the time. And what's but happening I, to their hoof? Yeah. While that's going on. That's great. A few things. One of, one thing is that they're just constantly pushing each other around. So you use the herd dynamic to give them movement. The whole name of the game of building feet is the more steps they can get, the better. Uh-huh. And, and, and the other thing is they're, they're, they're moving and eating off the ground. It's not like a pasture. A pasture is probably the best where they've got their head down and one foot stretched forward. And then they mow all the grass down between their head and their foot. And then they take another step and they mow all the grass down and, and, and they take turns flexing their body with their head down. Mm-hmm. And with a dry track system like ours is, and we've got the hay spread around, You'll still go down and you'll see where they've made those patterns in the sand, picking up all the grass. We feed only Bermuda, so they don't suck up all the sand with the alfalfa leaves. I see. But they can rake up the all the little grass stems. And mm-hmm. in that same posture that they've been doing for millions of years, it keeps <laughs> them in good shape, keeps their top lines nice and supple. Yeah, beautiful. So you're not feeding in hay nets or on hay poles. No, and I don't think that's bad. I think maybe it'd be a combination of that because horses probably eat up and down. Mm -hmm. They they would have, they would be doing a little browsing probably in nature, but I I think mostly the head down and and the leg stretched forward and alternating is the best thing for them. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's been good enough for about 6,000 years, I guess, or more. 50 million, really, I think, are the trick of that. But how important do you think uh, elevation is in a paddock? Some people just have a flat pasture in the back. What do you do for that? I think that it doesn't really matter. The smallest track system I've ever encouraged somebody to put in was they had two horses in in stalls, and the stalls were next to each other at a barn. Mm -hmm. And they were each like a 12 by... Maybe it was a like a 20 by 20 
each pen was 20 by 20 with a covered area and then half t- uh, uncovered area. Mm-hmm. And I asked them if they could, if the horses got along and they said they got along. And I said, well, then take, take the section and see if you can ask the barn owner to take a section off of each end down the divider. So there's still a divider in the middle, okay. but each end comes out. So they have like a loop mm. and they can, and she was, she got permission to do that. And the very next time I came out to trim, their feet were much better. Just Look from, at that. And you could mm-hmm. see that they'd worn kind of a track through the sh- shadings and they were wet where they peed and they were drier underneath where, where the sun was hitting. It wasn't optimum footing, but the movement was making their feet better already. So, wow. and that's something that could be really, that would be easy to do in, in barn situations with a limited space. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, look how easy that yeah. is. And you already, as the yeah. farrier, saw the improvement in them. And they didn't have some gravel path that they were walking on or anything like nope, that? No, nope, yeah. just movement. Just movement. Yeah. That's just within a few weeks. Mm-hmm. What do you think about you know, performance horses in this, too? Because a lot of people think, oh, yeah, that's fine for the backyard pet. But what about uh, a horse that uh, does three-day eventing or something? It's better because they're moving all the time. If they were in a herd, setting moving in a little track no matter it's a big track little track whatever but constant movement mm-hmm. at free choice movement too so they could do they felt like galloping around and gallop if they just want to stand there they can stand there whatever and it's only going to make them more conditioned when they go to do their work It'd be right. less injuries i'm sure i would think so yeah you've got them you've yeah. got them already warmed up yeah. out there moving around yeah. instead of a 12 by 12 yeah that's amazing so one of the things that you say is that you've seen trimmers placing too much emphasis on the toe and wall trimming and neglecting the back of the foot. And I'd like you to talk to a little bit about that because sometimes do people just focus on what's that trim look like in the very toe? Yeah. 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 That's a real common, I don't, you know, possibly trend right now where the people have been taught, I'd say in the last 25, 30 years, Maybe it's longer than that, but what I've since I've been paying attention to what people are saying, and I've read some stuff from a little bit of, of from the past, but most of the stuff that I read is more current to see. And then just what you people doing on Facebook, and what I see people doing around when I'm traveling, doing clinics, and I see most people say oh, I was taught this way, and sure. or I've been doing it this way, or this from whatever. And the common trend that I've seen lately is to bring the toe back aggressively and then make a platform out of the heels. Mm-hmm. And that is, a, for, in my experience, what that does is it disengages the soft tissue in the back of the foot, the lateral cartilages, and the digital cushion where the weight's supposed to be resting on. It's a cushion, and it puts it up on the coffin bone, and it and not only the coffin bone, but it but it sets the horse on their skeleton, on the bones, on their joints, and they're compressing their joints, and they it's an easier trim too. You just you're done in no time once you just take the toes and flatten off the heels. But what really makes these well, the other thing it does is when they're up on their toes, they're demineralizing their coffin bone, so right. you're maybe relaxing the tendon a little bit. You're taking some tension out of the tendon so they can maybe last a little while and improve the comfort that way. But you're robbing Peter to pay Paul and, mm-hmm. and, and then and now you're foundering the horse or uh, at least demineralizing the coffin bone. Mm-hmm. So the, what I've found is and it's hard to do, especially if you have a horse that has bone missing, but it's possible is to, in order to build the soft tissue back and re-engage the soft tissue, You've got to start shaping the heels and making the frog 
more anatomically correct to their inner matching them to their inner structures mm-hmm. and slowly lowering down the weight in the back. And typically it, it provides when you start this. And I think that the biggest mistake people make is they go in and they just start taking the heels down and then they take the heels down to the horse is sore. And then they let the horse go back up on their toe until they're comfortable. And they find some place like that that works for the horse, but they don't realize that you can gradually reshape the back of the foot until the back of the foot becomes strong. And then you transfer the horse's weight gradually to the back of their foot and, and you build their soft tissue as you're doing it. But that whole process takes, it, it takes the rest of their life, but it takes a couple of years in a lot of cases to establish that type of, to stabilize the foot in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, more importantly, so it's too. A process. That's, yeah. Yeah. More importantly, though, what do you see when you see your horses out in your pasture that you've built, the track system that you put in? What does that back of the foot look like? Is that the way? Are you emulating or simulating what the hoof wants to do anyway? Yeah. So what what I'm doing is putting and I believe that the horse is supposed to carry 60 percent. And now that's just a number that I'm making up. But I'll say the majority of their weight, the majority of their weight in the back of their foot. And and that could be 51%, who knows, but okay. it, and it's different for every horse and what sure. they can do depending on their confirmation. Okay. But what I'm trying to do is, is get the horse and, and I've figured, I've learned that they're supposed to do that because that's where they end up. Right. When I'm trimming that, the, I'm trimming to simulate wear and just removing the dead stuff off their foot. I'm not sculpting up their foot. I'm just simulating wear, taking off dead stuff that's brittle and changing their position to load their, I'm switching, I'm shifting their weight a little bit more to the back of their foot by taking off dead stuff and making the shape more uh, comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then the more that they lean back, the more that they develop the inside of their foot. And then the more they exfoliate the outside. And I just keep exfoliating the outside until I have the shape, but the shape is always really similar. Whether it's, you might have a skinny frog with narrow heels or a fat frog with white, with wide heels but it's the same curvature over the structures mm-hmm. that, that makes it work. So it's like everybody has a different shaped thumb, but they're all pretty much the same. They look like a thumb, so, yeah. So the shape comes in on its own as the foot develops, mm-hmm. but that takes, it takes, the foot is constantly developing, continually developing. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of change maybe up front, but then it's over the years, you're still getting improved. Or I should say, I'm still getting improvement from what I've seen, from what I've done. Yeah. So your goal really is to get the foot doing what it needs to do to keep that horse sound and strong and healthy, getting that blood back up the leg. And you're trying to see what that looks like out in the backyard, but also you're getting immediate functionality and sustainability if you head in that direction. Yeah. So what I'm really trying to do is make the horse structurally sound, not just functionally sound. I've found so many horses have a lot of pathologies in their feet and they still can do their job. And when a good rider or a horse in a situation where they're, they think they need to do it, they can power through it, but they're not benefiting. They're, they're not getting a benefit from it. They're tearing their feet up. So you can either build a horse's feet with every step or you can break them down with every step. And if you're conscious of where, where the horse's uh, weight bearing is, where they're carrying their weight bearing, if they're using the back of their foot comfortably, then they're building soft tissue and building a cushion and taking the strain off of their joints. Their muscle starts to support their body. It starts with the soft tissue in the bottom of the foot, in the back of the foot. But when they're on the soft tissue, it's bouncy 
they're buoyant, and then they start using the, the muscles in their body to support them instead of their skeleton. Yeah, I love that. So, so I, you're saying that strength is coming from that bending without breaking, that just like yes. people power through a, a muscle curl, yeah, they're building up that yeah. muscle by tearing it down, but it's going to not break it. It's going to build right. up. Right, right, and and last, make it last, and make it last. It, it's a, it's a regenerative process. It's not a it's not using the horse for in their youth to get what you can out of them and then retiring them early. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of treating them like a partner and building their bodies to be able to do athletic things because they think it's fun and it's better than sitting around in the backyard all the time. It's it's good to have. I, I think competition and uh, performance is great. It, it's only good if it's beneficial for the horse. Yeah. Well, I love your uh, whole philosophy and I love what you're doing for horses. And I saw a, a gorgeous photo of you just in the midst of trimming a horse, but the horse just yawning like crazy. And yeah. your statement about that it creates um, a support system for the horse emotionally, mentally, and physically too. And that's a great way to look right. at trimming. Yeah, and the horse is the ultimate judge of that trim when they get yes, they are. relaxed. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I love that you said you were just in Texas and then you were back to Tucson, where you are. Your home is. Do you get to people remotely somehow? Are you doing this through Zoom, or what are you doing these days for trimming outside of your home? Well, I well outside of my home, I go to wherever anybody wants to hold a clinic, wherever they can organize a, a clinic and. That's been internationally and locally and then in the States. And then I go outside of the clinics. That's the easiest way to do it because it's expensive to fly people around where you can just split the cost and do a clinic. And locally, I just go as far as I can where someone can afford, you know, to, to pay the to pay what it costs to get me there and turn their horses. And I try to, I've got some people locally that I've taught that I think do really good work and I try to yeah. get refer them for the places I can't get and you know just go about that I I still have my regular schedule of horses that I've been taking care of for years so it's really nice that's kind I love your philosophy and you have a patreon page where you post educational videos every month well the patreon page is we found out about that two three years ago that was even possible and we just started posting videos up and uh, and advertising on Facebook that we were posting these, you know, half hour trim videos, and then we that subscription base grew, and we beside that I had another online hoof a private hoof help page on Facebook called Hoof Builders, where I was teaching people how to build feet, not just trim them, and I had a small following with that. And I ended up linking the two together and made Hoof Builders Patreon members page that has a couple of trim videos per month. We've got almost 100 now that you can, and the first part of that is it's $5 to get 100 videos. So it's kind of hard to beat. And, <laughs> it's hard to beat. Um, and then when we, yeah, and we cover, we cover everything. We, and we've got consecutive trims where you can follow a horse that's been trimmed each trim cycle up to five or six trims so you can actually see the evidence uh-huh. of the foot improving. It's a good idea. And the hoof help page, I have all, most of the current horses that I trim have albums on that page so that I contribute to. I upload every chance I get so people can watch the 
the progress being made from trim to trim. And then I encourage people to post their own horses that they have more questions on and they can have albums on horses. So instead of someone just sending me a picture and say, hey, how do I trim this foot? Or, hey, what's wrong with this foot? I can say, just start posting pictures of your trims and then we can look for the patterns instead of mm. to say trim here or trim there because that doesn't really work. It's an ongoing process. And then the better they get at building, the faster they can build feet. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the faster they get at building feet, the more excited they get about it, the more they right. start showing other people how to do it. And so it goes. Look at that. That's great. Yeah. You're eloquent. You're, I think you're the future of trimming. And I bet you're already saying like, yeah, I've been the future like for 20 years now. But I really, I like your direction. I like your philosophy. And I appreciate you coming on Horsemanship Radio. I hope to have you back, David. Give us some yeah, more of what great. you're doing. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Leave this world a better place than mine. The magic in Next up, we have our training tip this week with Carrie Scrimma of ACTHA. She offers a training tip. Well, you'll have to listen in. <laughs> Welcome back, Carrie Scrimma. Thank you so much for agreeing to come back and giving us a little bit more of your extensive knowledge, all your experience. And I always wonder when I get to talk to somebody who has the long career that you've had and uh, been around horses your whole life to tell me what you like to be asked. Tell me a tip that you like to give people because you almost always know something that seems so obvious to you, but people must ask you all the time and you like to share it. Tell me what that is. Well, there are so many little tips that, that are important, but I'd say one of the most things that I think that are very important to a trail rider is We've heard a lot lately in the horse world about desensitizing a horse. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've heard that, Debbie, and I certainly think it's very important to desensitize a horse. But I also know that horses are hardwired to spook. They're a prey animal. Can you desensitize a horse against everything? No, you can't. I mean, if you go out trail riding in the Rocky Mountains, you might run into a bear very few people have bears in their backyard. You know, they can't desensitize their horse. So what is it that you need to be able to do? You need to be able to ride a spook no matter what. There you go. Okay? Because it's going to happen no matter how much you desensitized your horse. The most important thing, I think, in riding a spook is that the riders keep their heels down. I think it is essential to the balance and the whole feel of a horse that these that riders have their legs close to the horse's side and they have their heels down because that anchors you. Your heels anchor you. They are what helps you stay down and stay with this horse. The other thing is flexibility with the heel down. It's not that you should lock your heels down and make a stiff leg. It's okay. that it's that the joint itself is flexible and can move. Okay. So when you have your heel down, you don't want to be in a rigid locked position. Uh-huh. But there should be a flexibility in that joint. There should also be a bend in your knee because that helps again with flexibility. The place where your spine meets your hips needs to be flexible, needs to be very soft so that you can move with this horse. This is a a living creature. 
when you play tennis, your tennis racket can't do anything different from what you tell it to do. <laughs> okay, good point. Nor could your golf club, right? But now you're right. on a living, moving, yeah. breathing animal. And so your body must remain soft and flexible with the ability to move with this animal. And so I think this is the strongest tip I can give riders is to say that I feel heels down are important to anchor you onto the horse. I feel that it is important to ride with your legs close to the horse and that rigidity is an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> uh-huh. So what I'm hearing, Carrie, being over 50, I'm hearing be flexible and uh, don't stiffen up when your horse spooks. And I'm thinking there's a lot of women out there going, uh-oh, I got to go back to the gym. <laughs> because number one, I got to learn to breathe so I stay relaxed and don't get rigid. And then I'm going to have to be real flexible in those hips. But I guess that's, that is the truth. You've got to stay flexible. You've got to learn to breathe. We're going to have to do an, uh, a uni lesson on, you know, our Equus Online University, and we're yeah. going to have to add a component of breathing. And, and It is very important to, to keep breathing. I, I think that's how the horses, they have a way of knowing when humans are frightened. And that's how they do it. When we hold our breath, It changes our seat. It changes a lot of things. So that's how a horse knows. If a human can stay relaxed, it's like, oh, the captain thinks it's okay. Why should I worry? Must be Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just being relaxed on a horse is important. Just as a brief tip, quick tip, I think it's important for riders to be flexible, to breathe, but to have their heels down. That's the reason. A lot of people wonder, you know, why the heck do my, does my instructor keep telling me to put my heels down? <laughs> now, um, <laughs> he doesn't want you to fall off on his watch. <laughs> also, if I think I call it, when I'm teaching, I call it the fatal fetal position. What riders want to do is look down and basically assume a fetal position when something happens, okay. and which means they kind of, their heels come up, they go onto the ball of their toes, and they look down and kind of crouch. Well, that's the fatal fetal. They're, they're, you know, the next thing is going to happen is they're going to hit the ground. Oh, so, we'll have to come back and talk about helmets sometime, oh, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sensible. Helmets are great. And they're being made better and more comfortable. And I can't say enough good things about helmets. Growing up as an English rider, basically, in the hunter-jumper world, helmets are natural to us. They're part of the costume. It's a little hard to get these cowboys. All we can do is the concessions are to head covering now. I've gotten that far, but yeah, a cap is not the same. So we're going to get yeah. there. We've got uh, scientists working on helmets that look somewhat less than a mushroom look. <laughs> but they, <laughs> they do have a brim on them anyway. But Well, thank you, Carrie Scrimmon, for, for that additional lovely knowledge. I love having you on the show. Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. 
Here at Flag is Up Farms, November 8 to 19, we have the introductory course of horsemanship. And then November 20 to December 3rd, we have the Gentling Wild Horses course. It's five days, Jen. And December 6 through 8th, we have the introductory course, Module 1. That's the first steps to Monty's methods. Then we're going to have our last of the year, Horse Sense and Healing for Veterans and First Responders. That's December 10 to 12. So if you know of anybody and can recommend anybody, that would be the one for 2021. And then January 29th, we have a Horsemanship 101. Those are hugely popular, so get in right now if you want to get in that. We have to cut it off at like about 10. So January 31 to February 2, we have an introductory course, Module 1 again. That's the first steps to Monty's methods. And then we go into Module 2 and 3. So that'll be February 3 through 5 and then February 7 to 9. So if you want to stay, you'll have three modules in a row from January 31 to February 9. It's a good time to come out to California too. And then June 7 17th, advanced planning, June 17th to 19 is the movement 2022. And we're getting some big surprises for that one for you. So stay tuned. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Put that on your calendar early for today. Details about today's show. You're going to find them at horsemanshipradio.com. You're going to find links, photos, and information about today's guests and topics. You can follow Monty Roberts on social media for both Twitter and Instagram. His handle is Monty underscore Roberts. And of course, on Facebook, it's just plain old Monty Roberts, the one with the little blue check mark. And thank you very much to our sponsor, because without them, we wouldn't be here. Hands on gloves. And Monty Roberts University. A lot of great stuff there, too. We have almost 600 lessons up there now. It's amazing. Be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours.